Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. Sustainable Stories is here to bring you the stories behind sustainability in our communities. From big to small, practical to theoretical, we're exploring the people and projects that are working to make our world a more sustainable, equitable, and healthy place to live. Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. My name is Jenna Inglot, and I will be your host for today's episode. I'm really excited to have with me Barbara Seed, who is a dietitian, but she also has a master's of public health and a PhD in food policy. So I'm really excited to hear Barbara's thoughts today um, about sustainability and how she incorporates it into her work and her life. So welcome, Barbara. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Jenna. It's uh, great to be here. Um, yeah, and I, I'm at the this time I'm consulting in nutrition and food policy, focusing on integrating nutrition, food systems, and the environment. Um, I spent most of my career in public health nutrition in Alberta and BC, and as I'll tell you about later, also in Qatar. And uh, since I became a consultant, most of my work has been in the area of food security indicators and sustainable diets specifically in the integration of sustainability into national dietary guidelines, which I'll tell you more about uh, later. When I graduated from dietetics, I told myself I'd go anywhere to work as long as it was in public health, where the focus was on health promotion and disease prevention. It never made much sense to me to talk to people about nutrition while they were sick in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So my first job was in a small town in northern Alberta. I moved to BC in the early 90s, uh, 1990s, um, and worked as a public health nutrition uh, nutritionist. And there were always some of us who saw a broader perspective of food systems and really wanted to integrate it into our work, but it was difficult to justify that kind of work within the health system. Um, that was a time, though, when there started to be a greater understanding of the determinants of nutritional health, which, so basically, when the focus changed from the um, from looking at the individual to the importance of how our, the environment um, influences our food choices. When I say environment in this context, I mean like cafeterias, vending machines, the setup of grocery stores, that sort of thing. Right. And we, right. Started, we started to recognize that we needed um, systems change. So we began a learning process about food policy in the province. And we did this at the same time, with people involved um, from civil society with the BC Food Systems Network. And at that time, I was really privileged to be in a position to lead the committee, which successfully integrated food security as a core public health program in BC, which to this day, I still consider one of my, you know, um, greater career achievements. Mm -hmm. And not too long after that, well into my career, well into my career, I began a PhD in food policy um, under Tim Lang, um, who's a food policy guru in, uh, in, from London, England. And my dissertation looked at how food security initiatives were integrated into public health. Wow, that's incredible. I'm, I'm in awe of, <laughs> of all of the things that you've done and, and worked on, Barbara. So this is amazing. Thank you for sharing. Um, so you've 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 jumped to this a, a little bit already, Barbara. But where does your sustainability story begin? So you know who or what? How how did you get started working in this space? 
Well, looking retrospectively, in terms of my work, it started in a place I never would have expected. I was living in Kuwait with my partner in the Middle East, and I was focused on writing up my dissertation. In 2010, my advisor, Tim Lang, told me that he was attending a conference on sustainable diets in Rome. I thought that sounded incredible, and I called up the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO, and got myself invited. And I knew when I was at the conference that I had really found an area where I wanted to focus the rest of my career. We moved to Qatar in 2012, and I took the position of coordinator of national nutrition policies and programs. The main focus was developing their first dietary guidelines. The wheels started turning, and I was determined to incorporate sustainability principles into the guidelines. Although uh, it hadn't successfully been done before, and there was no uh, blueprint, but I drew on work from Australia, England, and some other areas. And I'm just going to digress for a moment, um, because you might say, why do dietary guidelines matter? Like the Canada Food Guide, are they even relevant? We often think of the food guide as just a piece of paper that gets put onto a refrigerator and forgotten. But the very first Canada official food rules were introduced in 1942 as a wartime nutrition program to really maximize nutrition in the context of poverty and food rationing for both soldiers and civilians. And now the dietary guidelines and the Canada Food Guide are used to inform national acts, policies and programs, things like food labeling, which include nutrient and health claims, which then influence the formation of products, provincial acts, policies and programs, uh, things like residential care regulations and child care regulations, which direct menu planning for these populations. It can also influence municipal policies and programs, such as food sold at recreation centers. Um, <clears throat> it also has an impact on public set sector food service settings, like universities. And we've seen uh, that some of the most advanced environmental sustainability food programs in Canada are indeed at universities. Uh, the Canada Food Guide is also used in many programs for the food insecure, like food banks or community kitchens. It's used to plan resources on healthy eating across a lifespan, things like uh, the federal nutrition for healthy term infants or provincial guidelines for food and beverage sales in schools or in um, education curricula. And then finally, it's also used in research and monitoring. It's, a st it's standard for surveillance uh, programs like the nutritional, uh, National Nutritious Food Basket, the Community uh, Health Survey, Canadian Community Health Survey, and other research that happens in long-term care facilities, hospitals, childcare. And there have been quite a few studies showing that nationally recommended diets like the Canada Food Guide compared with average diets eaten by the same population show a potential reduction in greenhouse gases, eutrophication, and land use in high-income nations. So back to Qatar, when we were developing the dietary guidelines, I slowly introduced the concept of a plant-based diet. I had completed my Master's of Public Health in Minnesota in the early 1990s, and we had Larry Cushy as a lecturer. He's now a leading scholar in cancer research in the U.S. 
And using evidence, he convinced us then of the merits of a plant-based diet. We had individual lectures on the benefits of whole grains, then legumes, then fruit, then vegetables, then nuts and seeds. The evidence was so overwhelming that I have been promoting eat more plants since that time. At the time we were developing the guidelines in um, Qatar, the term plant-based diet wasn't really in vogue as it is now, so I wasn't sure how it would go over, but it was well received. The development of the dietary guidelines uh, messages in Qatar was an iterative process. First, we looked at the context of Qatar, which gave us some support to sustainability messages within the guidelines. Qatar's development strategy identified scarcity in water, low arable land, solid waste generation, and the depletion of fish stocks as issues that threaten both the environment and the food supply. And while some committee members didn't really see the connection between the dietary guidelines and sustainability, seeing the prime objective as nutritional health, others did support the idea. We had drafted the nutrition guidelines, but the fact that sustainability principles were not only complementary to these draft guidelines, but reinforced them, helped to really uh, support the inclusion of sustainability. For example, the focus on plant-based diet and decreasing red and processed meat contributed both to human and environmental health, a win-win. And the Ministry of Health was beginning to support the idea. What really convinced them in the end to include this was their concern over food waste. Islam has a generous tradition of sharing food, but wasting food is haram against God. And of course, there was increasing global awareness of food waste, but it was also something experienced by many daily, partly because of the generous nature of the Arabs in relation to sharing food. What really convinced them in the end to include this uh, really was food waste. So in addition to consuming a plant-based diet, reducing meat consumption, and reducing leftovers and waste, the sustainability principles also included promoting breastfeeding, choosing fresh homemade foods over highly processed and fast foods, conserving water, and where available, consuming locally and regionally produced foods. So Qatar created one of the first national guidelines to integrate the principles of sustainability. The opportunity to be a world leader as one of the first countries include sustainability guidelines, I believe was also an incentive. Qatar, through many programs, strives to be a world leader. For example, when we were there in 2013, it was named the world's leading sports tourism destination. The strong authority of the Ministry of Health, including the manager for the department, who was a member of the royal family, having a small domestic food industry, and a lack of food industry influence also um, helped to contribute to the um, inclusion. And the support of the food and agriculture organization in this also helped tremendously. By the time the guidelines were released in 2015, Brazil and Sweden had released their guidelines, which also included sustainability uh, principles. And I wrote up and published this work. Wow, that's incredible, Barb. I'm just 
yeah that's what an what a journey and what an interesting thing to be at the forefront of that's incredible um and it's also really interesting you you said this a few times but you know why the food guides are are even all that important and i think it's something you know i've i've thought about more um you know in the last year or so of my life but uh you know i a number of folks in my friend group are are having children and um, they're so much more conscious of, you know, what those food recommendations are and how they're serving their, their children's plates. And they, they all talk about how, you know, important it is to have some guidelines that, um, you know, focus on health and nutrition, but also focus on, on sustainability and, and, you know, the well-being of, of the planet. So, um, yeah, so this is amazing. And then, so, so Thank you for sharing all, all of that about your experience in Qatar. Um, and after that, you returned to Canada? Yes, I returned to Canada in 2014. The work in Qatar led me to do more work here with sustainable diets, including speaking and writing on the topic. In 2016, I wrote a background paper for Health Canada, examining the integration of environmental sustainability principles into the Canada Food Guide. And after that, I was one of the lead writers for the Dietitians of Canada World Paper on Sustainable Food Systems. I've got a small contract with Acadia University and the International Congress of Dietetics reviewing and summarizing articles on sustainable food systems for the Congress website. The other work uh, that I've been working on has been for the BC Provincial Health Services Authority on food security indicators. We developed a conceptual framework for indicators and developed the foundation for specific indicators. And this work is available on the BC CDC website. The indicator work also focused on food security resilience, and we'll have a chance to talk more about that later. Awesome. Great. Yeah. So, so back in British Columbia now, very cool. Um, so yeah, is there anything else? Um, that you can share with us, Barb, about sustainability specifically and, and sort of what, you know, what sustainability means to you and, and how you incorporate it into your work? Within my work, I certainly started with environmental sustainability with a focus on food. Our Dietitians of Canada paper took a broader look to include economic, social and cultural sustainability. And of course, these are inseparable from environmental issues. I think banana plantations are a good example where pesticide use is disastrous for both the environment and the workers. And you might notice that I'm jumping a bit between sustainable food systems and sustainable diets. So maybe I'll just say something about that. When I think of sustainable diets, I think about the consumption aspect of the food system, what we're eating. Whereas when I look at sustainable food systems, I think of the entire food system from production and inputs to the farm, to, to processing, to fork, to waste. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Barb. And you, you, I would say what you just shared is definitely a, a list of, of key lessons from some of the work that you've done over the years. I also want to bring up the topic of resiliency as it's related to, to uh, sustainability. It's a topic that has certainly become more familiar in these COVID times. Resiliency is about our food system's ability to withstand shocks and emergencies, whether that's floods, earthquakes, ice storms, fires, or as we're currently experiencing COVID. 
Resiliency and sustainability are complementary concepts. Sustainability is about preserving the system in the long term, whereas resiliency is more related to the short term. And research shows that for resiliency, both large-scale global food systems and local and regional food systems are important. Unfortunately, our food systems are strongly skewed towards uh, global food systems, certainly here in, in, in the West. And our current situation has exposed the vulnerabilities in these large-scale systems. If we didn't know it before, We've all learned that most of our meat supply in Canada comes from a handful of meat processing plants and that our fruit and vegetable consumption relies on foreign workers. These seemingly large issues may pale in comparison when we consider potential disruptions from climate change and environmental degradation. So we really hope that COVID will be a wake-up call. I believe that we need to rethink efficiency across the supply chain. We actually want redundancy in our food system. We want more than one type of corn if there's a corn failure of a certain breed, or if a bridge or road goes out or a plant is shut down, we need to have more than one way to access a specific product. Just as healthy diets require us to eat a diversity of foods, we need a diversity within our food systems to enhance resiliency. And our Food and our systems need to be able to adapt quickly in order to, dare I use that COVID word, pivot. You brought up that term resiliency. And I think, you know, my background is in renewable energy or community energy and energy planning. And the concept of resiliency for sure is is sort of kind of always, always been a part of that practice. But it's much more now we're starting to think about the way that these pieces of our communities interact. So, you know, water, water security and food security, um, energy security, how all these different pieces come together. Um, did you have any other um, sort of key lessons from, from your work that, that you, you'd like to share? Even if we are scientists, what we do is an art. We have to learn to speak so others will listen. Finding the hook is essential. How can we engage people to make changes? Some municipalities may be hooked in through a focus on community food resilience for emergency planning. Health authorities might pay attention to environmental shifts that promote health, like increasing plant-based proteins. Hospitals might have an interest in saving money through using plant-based proteins. And a lot of research I've seen is showing that persuading people to make dietary shifts for health reasons may be more effective than trying to convince them for environmental reasons. That's where the win-win diets that promote both health and sustainability are important. It's always important to start where people are at. Maybe we don't all need to become vegans or start eating cricket powder, unless you already do those things, and then kudos to you. But it might be also as small as encouraging one vegetarian meal a week and wasting less food. Those of us in food think of food as a gateway drug to sustainability. Food cuts across all areas of our life and all areas of sustainability. And of course, the strong lever is money and economics. Currently, often private industry creates externalized costs that have to be picked up by the public purse. Things like meat producers not being responsible for the impacts of nitrogen release into the water supply 
or companies that profit from making highly processed and sometimes addictive foods not being held accountable for the ill health created by the consumption of these foods, just as tobacco companies were not held accountable for the costs of cancer in the population. But there's also positive externalities that could be captured by the market. For example, there are more programs looking at farmers paying for their services as well as their products, such as supplying ecosystem services like wetlands on their farm. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think um, one thing for me, Barb, that really stands out in the connection between food and sustainability, and just to preface this, um, you know, I, I grew up in agriculture and and live rurally now and spend a lot of time growing food and raising food and um and and am conscious of that, but it's not it's not my professional area of expertise. But when I think about food and sustainability, I also think of the tangible things. You know, there's there's certain tangible things that individuals can can do or feel like they're a part of in terms of making changes towards um, sustainability and the environment. And I, I think of food, food is always the one that comes to mind first and not just growing our own food and, and that type of thing, but just being more connected to our food and more connected to our food system. Um, you know, and then the food waste issue as well. It's something that's very tangible that people can see in their day-to-day lives and be able to make some of those changes, um, you know, that, that make a, a po- more positive, more environmentally conscious future. So, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, where do you get your inspiration from, Barb? So this this can be, you know, books or teachings or, uh, you know, scholars or fellow colleagues, um, projects you've worked on or anything else you'd like to share. Where where does that inspiration come for you to to keep keep doing this good work? Rod McRae, a food policy scholar out of York University, argued in 1999 that agriculture should be a servant to health. Imagine that. What a radical statement. We should grow food that is healthy for us to eat and in ways that are healthy for the environment, for consumers, and for the workers. And you can see that this is far from the way that our food system currently works. I guess another inspiration happened when I was at a food security conference in the Middle East. I was inspired by folks working on local food sustainability, such as conserving mangroves, as a local food source, as food, and for the diversity of seafood that lives within them. And this was in contrast to the old European white guys that came in and told them the only viable way to food security was importing food. And along that line, some of the international work done by the Food and Agriculture Organization is inspiring. The Homegrown School Feeding Program links local agriculture to meals, uh, meal programs, rather than importing food and supplements. Um, It really is about time to restore local food systems. And I think we're all inspired by Indigenous elders standing up for the health of the planet. You might be familiar with the not-yet-elder Dawn Morrison. Uh, She's of of, uh, Shekwetnik ancestry. Hopefully I said that almost right. Um, She's the founder of the Working Group on Indigenous Food Sovereignty. I was at a conference in the 1990s when she stood up and talked about Indigenous people being canaries in the coal mine in terms of the loss of rights. And if we didn't think that would happen to us, we were sorely mistaken. That was a wake-up call for me. And more recently, I uh, read the uh, book by Indigenous botanist 
Robin Wall, Kimmer, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. Her messages really make sense at an intuitive level. And finally, I'm inspired by farmers, young ones coming up and committed despite tremendous barriers like inability to purchase land due to exorbitant prices, and older ones standing up for agricultural land reserve in British Columbia and for just keeping on farming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that, Barb. I, um, yeah, you know, it's interesting when I think about, um, you know, our, our food system and, and sustainable food systems, we have a lot to learn from, from indigenous people. I think, you know, historically and inherently sustainable food systems is is really a part of of um you know a, a way that it we could learn a lot from from them um as is often the case when it comes to different environmental and sustainability initiatives and 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 i yeah it's interesting i actually spent some time living in Kelowna um and uh, at the time met with a lot of young young farmers in that area and and it was interesting hearing their stories because, you know, having grown up in a in a farming background in Saskatchewan and 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 now you know own and bought farmland and live 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 on farmland and and what a challenge it was for those folks to in the Okanagan to even remotely dream of owning farmland and they were so passionate um, about growing produce or growing you know what I mean they were so excited about that and then I remember kind of. Um, you know, talking to them about their challenges and struggles around around land and land access, especially in a city where um, you know it, it was growing and and urban sprawl was a challenge and all of these different things. So, um, yeah, thank you, thanks for sharing that sort of experience. And and I feel like uh, in in different areas, you, we, you know, we get a lot of inspiration from the same places. So, yeah, that's mm-hmm. very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, Barb, so much for for sharing all of this um, with myself and with our listeners today. Um, I'm excited to to dig more into some of these topics that you that you talked about, and um, I'll be sure to you know keep in touch. But if there's anything else after the um, you know, in the, in, anything that you talked about in today's show, um, you know, if there's links or anything that you're able to share, I'll be sure to post them in the show notes so that our listeners, um, you know, have the opportunity to read and, and learn a bit more as well. But thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a real um, pleasure. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Sustainable Stories podcast. This podcast is hosted by myself, Jenna Inglot, as well as Roxanne Wagner from Sage Sustainable Solutions Consulting. For a full list of episodes, as well as more information about Sage, check us out online at sagesustainable.com. And as always, we welcome your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions. Catch you next time.